The future of business. Future of business. Future of business. More global and more decentralized. Making sure that enterprises are a lot more responsible. Smart cities. More collaboration. Consumer-driven. Productivity. Environmental and social responsibility. Global. Human-centered. Purposeful. Individualized. Automation. Big data. Climate change. Space exploration. Renewable energy. Information security. Exciting and digital. Hello and welcome to the Future of Business podcast. I'm your host, Alison MacArthur. According to the World Bank, there are currently 1 billion people who lack access to electricity. One company working to address this access gap is Beebox, which manufactures innovative solar systems for customers across sub-Saharan Africa. The company is confronting the challenges posed by inadequate infrastructure in emerging markets and uses a pay-as-you-go system that allows consumers to purchase energy through their mobile phones. Lawrence Copson and Greta Talbot-Jones are the lead finance and investment managers of Beatbox. They recently joined us by Skype from one of their offices in London. So firstly, thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast here today. Uh, We'd like to start by exploring the electricity access challenge that Beatbox is tackling. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about the challenges of lighting up Africa? Sure. So Beebox as a company started around eight years ago. And the context of the challenge of electrification in Africa um, has has changed over the last eight years, though the challenge still remains really, really large. At the moment, 42% of the population of sub-Saharan Africa do have access to electricity, though that access is varied in the sense that in some places that might be reliable grid connection, and in other areas it might be access to, for example, a fairly unreliable and intermittent grid. But that still leaves about 60% of the population of sub-Saharan Africa, which is a rapidly growing population without access to electricity. Um, I think it's also important to set the scene at the kind of national level across sub-Saharan Africa as well. So in certain countries, it's much more of a rural challenge. uh, And you might have urban electrification rates of 90% plus. For example, in Kenya, their urban electrification is reaching about 90%, though in rural areas, uh, it's still a large population without access to electricity. But in other countries, it's not just a majority rural problem, also an urban population where the grids are much more unreliable or there's been rapid population growth and the infrastructure hasn't built out. So countries like Democratic Republic of the Congo, are a very good example of this. So there is a, is a kind of a big challenge at the macro level. And then if you drum down into individual countries, you start identifying the nuances of where specifically electrification needs to happen. And the big backdrop of this is that population in, in sub-Saharan Africa is, the, is growing at the fastest rate in the whole world. There's, a, there's just over a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment, and that's expected to at least double by 2050. Um, and we're only 10 years roughly away from 2030. Population projections say that between 400 and 500 million people will be born in sub-Saharan Africa uh, in the next 10 years. And so for governments thinking about electrification policy, they have to make sure that not only the electrification rate is going up, but the absolute number of people that don't have access to electricity isn't rising in the backdrop of huge population growth. So what you say ties closely with uh, the SDG Goal 7, uh, which is to ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern energy for all. Uh, As you know, the UN has set an ambitious target of universal access by 2030. 
Uh, based on what you've seen in your efforts, do you think that we're on track to reach this? So the key thing that people forget here is what is the definition of energy access? So if you're just giving someone a, a lantern, a solar lantern, does that really um, justify the the definition of giving them energy mm. access? And I think this is one thing also that we've debated a lot internally or tried to communicate externally is the good thing about a solar home system is that enables a customer kind of to move up the energy access ladder. If you give them a finite kind of Pico lantern or a Pico system, there's a, there's a very strong ceiling to what they can access. So if their income increases, then either they have to forego that asset that they've spent a lot of money on um, and upgrade, for example, to the Bebop system, or they're kind of stuck in a bit of a lull. So that question, I think it's, 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 an, it's an ambitious target, but it also depends on how you define energy access. I think we sometimes forget that electricity is a key enabler to improve livelihoods and productivity. Uh, for example, cooking at night or, or doing homework. How did the people uh, in the countries you operate in in Africa access these services before you began providing them with B-Box systems? So the, the setting of like a typical B-Box customer um, would be a household of about five people. The main forms of employment for the parents would be farming. Um, and our customers live in very rural areas where obviously the grid will never reach them. Um, the current forms of light is through kerosene lanterns or candles, which is obviously both dangerous, quite unreliable, and can be very expensive comparatively to the services that we offer them. So when they kind of transition to a solar home system or a B-Box system, um, what they get is not only reliable um, electricity at a reasonable price, of course, but they have the opportunity to upgrade and kind of move up the energy access ladder. And that's one of the premises that's really important for B-Box as a company is, okay, fine, you can give a customer a solar lantern, but being able to expand their access to more appliances and improve their, their well-being and lifestyle by kind of adding a radio to be able to understand where the next market is, the next month where they can sell their produce. Um, those kind of steps on the energy access ladder is incredibly important to be able to kind of give them what we call um, the on-grid experience in the off-grid world. So could you tell us a bit about how the B-Box product works and how it addresses these challenges? The core of the B-Box product offering is what we call the B-Power 50, okay? And what that is, it's a 50-watt solar panel with a kind of a 17-amp-hour battery with a circuit board in there, which allows remote monitoring from our London headquarters on what the energy usage patterns are of the customer. Now, the customer signs up to a contract, which they pay off over a certain length of time. Um, like we would pay off our mobile phones, I suppose, in the, in the Western world. The contract lengths that we focus on is 36 months for the appliances and a 10 year contract for the underlying system. Now that's quite different to a lot of our competitors, but the reason for having that kind of long-term contract is across that period, we provide all maintenance, all customer support, if any challenges, arise like technically with the with the system we immediately replace replace that system take it back to our repair center and fix it 
what's super important to us about having that kind of 10-year um, relationship with the customer is that we don't want stranded assets in the field, okay? So we don't want pieces of technology sitting around rural Rwanda, um, batteries especially eroding in these rural areas. Um, and having that continual relationship over that 10-year period means that they always have a shop to go back to if they've got an issue. It increases brand trust within kind of the B-Box family. And essentially underlying everything, as I said before, we want to try and create that on-grid experience and that off-grid world. So Lawrence, do you want to describe kind of pay-as-you-go and how these customers actually pay on a day-by-day -day basis? Sure. So in our business model, we don't handle any cash from our customers. Uh, all customers basically prepay electricity onto their system and then they use it in terms of days as the, as the usage that they're paying for. This is all enabled via mobile phone technology uh, and the pay-as-you-go software platform that we've built in London. Uh, and it's only really been made possible, this whole sector and the pay-as-you-go technology that's, that's behind uh, the payments and the fact that you don't have to handle cash obviously reduces certain risks when you're putting assets in distributed settings. This has all been made possible, possible by mobile money and mobile phone penetration in these rural settings in sub-Saharan Africa. So not only are pretty basic smartphones being put in the hands of millions of people across sub-Saharan Africa, but also mobile money providers are allowing those users to easily transfer money to each other within the community, but also to businesses that are then building business models on the back of the ability to get those payments from their customers. So to really reiterate that point, if mobile money didn't exist and if smart, uh, basic smartphones hadn't proliferated like they had in sub-Saharan Africa, this business model would be much, much more risky because we'd be handling a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. and, and have you faced any um, political or cultural challenges? I think the key to overcoming that is hiring really good local talent. I think that's always a challenge too. Um, but I think all our key kind of operational staff, like our retail managers, um, our repair managers in the markets, uh, all have strong local links to the communities. Um, all our sales agents come from the kind of villages that they're selling in. So in that way, we've, we've made a concerted effort to make sure that the operations themselves are driven by kind of locals and people from those communities. So mm -hmm. I think in that way, there, there are always going to be political and cultural challenges when you're operating in a completely foreign market. But I think there, there are steps that you can take to mitigate that. And I think B-Box is very proactive in that way. So we haven't had any major hurdles. And I, I think, as we all know, the DRC, for example, is a very challenging market at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but those are kind of hurdles that you just overcome as, as they arrive. Building on that, I think the two other areas which are, which are big challenges, first is on the financing side. So the, the business model that we're essentially financing all our customers, um, the purchase of their assets. And this costs millions of dollars of upfront capital that's required to be raised, whether it's on the equity side or the debt side. Um, I think 
when I first joined Bebox about two and a half years ago, we were just closing our first debt transactions, okay, basically to fund new stock to grow our portfolio. Um, and I think the biggest challenge in kind of these sort of spaces across Africa is closing those first transactions. Yeah, so financing and the impact investing space is a really exciting area to be in at the moment. Do you find in terms of raising funds that there's a lot more interest in social enterprise? Um, we, we were actually discussing kind of this idea earlier, and I think there's kind of two stages, I suppose, that a social enterprise goes through in the maturity of um, the investors that it approaches. I think in kind of the early stage and probably up to about five five years of operating, what, this is Bebox's story anyway, it was very much impact investors that were our primary equity investors. And on a debt side, it was also kind of impact um, debt funds that were supplying us with facilities. What we see now is now that we're part, we're going through a lot of more partnerships and expanding um, geographically, we're seeing interest from a much wider range of um, potential investors. So large institutional investors, You'll see um, that in December we closed a transaction with the largest infrastructure um, fund in Africa. Um, so this is, of course, our business model is completely different. They used to project financing wind farms, for example, and now they're, they've invested in an off-grid solar company. So I think absolutely there's a huge amount of interest in the impact investing space. And as the world's becoming more interconnected, would you say that it's easier to do business in Africa than it was, say, 10 years ago? Sure. And mobile phones have just oh, yeah. dramatically True. changed the whole landscape uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, if you look at countries like Kenya, there are very high levels now of, of uh, access to, to mobile phones and, and them being used regularly. Um, so in the same way that you know, mobile phones have kind of shrunk the world, uh, in the UK, they're also kind of shrinking the size of the world in sub-Saharan Africa as well. There's no way without LED technology uh, and improvements we've seen in battery technology um, and mobile money access and mobile phone access amongst our customer base that this business model would ever be able to exist. Because otherwise it would be, you know, even if you had the first two things, you'd have a huge network of sales agents going around collecting cash, physical cash, bring that back to shops. Um, you know, that that would be a very, very hard business model to run, uh, partic particularly one based out of headquarters in London. Uh, whereas these days we have customers using mobile money, making payments. And that's going through that's going through our international um, you know, software system that that doesn't abide by you know the borders of of states, right? Um, so technology has has been a, a mm. huge a huge game changer there. So electricity access is one of the key challenges in sub-Saharan Africa, but I imagine there are other critical services and utilities where a pay-as-you-go model could also work. I know you mentioned clean cooking earlier. Is that something that you're looking into? If you look at the off-grid off rates for electricity, you know, they're strikingly high numbers. Then look at no access to clean cooking. And you know, sometimes in countries, they're 20, 30% higher than the, the amount of the population that has electricity access to electricity. So there's actually loads of people who are particularly peri-urban uh, households on the, on the periphery of the grid. Um, 
who, I, I mean, I'm sure the B-Box electricity solutions would be good for them if the grid is really intermittent at the periphery, but they, they're using dirty, expensive charcoal that is, you know, uh, super harmful for their health. And, and in countries like Kenya at the moment, is there is policy that's coming along that is basically putting bans on this on charcoal uh, in different ways and is, is, is meant that it's a massive incentive for people to come along with great solutions uh, to solve that problem. Uh, and and any, it's almost a case of anything will be better than the current solution. We can kind of, people might hear us saying, oh, we can think about LPG or natural gas and go, hang me, isn't that fossil energy? That is fossil energy, but that's much better than deforestation. Uh, the black carbon that's produced from charcoal, for example, when it's burnt and the, the increase in radiative forcing there, is, it has much higher global warming potential if it's properly measured than someone using LPD or natural gas to cook with. Uh, and then also biogas in rural farms that have cattle that are producing lots of waste um, and very calorific plant waste. Um, so there's going to be a whole spread of solutions in the clean cooking space and how you can apply pay-as-you-go technology to help customers uh, with the fact they won't be able to afford the up the upfront cost of the asset, particularly you know a biogas system that's even larger than buying the the a, a canister for example of gas. So we're having to think now much more about okay smart valves. What do they look like? What's the appropriate technology? What what are the correct payment plans? And how we can finance these in ways that we've been successful with solar home systems. Um, but there's huge. There's huge potential there and so many of our customers it's the next thing that they really really want and they they know that, that they'll make their life better and charcoal literally on a month by month basis is getting more expensive east africa is uh is is really where this is where this is happening and like one thing i just add also is like the growth we were looking at these figures yesterday actually the population growth in africa is going to be astounding over the next kind of 50 years you need kind of business models in terms of energy access, cooking that is scalable. Off-grid solutions are scalable, like mm. they're challenging, but they are scalable. I mean, you look at Nigeria, the population is projected to kind of reach 1 billion in 2100, okay? So the opportunity is there from a business perspective. The need is there um, from like a customer and customer and population perspective. But I suppose bridging those two things and making sure that like the political environment, the business model is sustainable, the technology can scale, um, are still massive hurdles and it's still an unknown. Like the success of these businesses is not a sure thing yet. Like so I think whether the business model develops over the next 10 or 20 years, undoubtedly, I I I would say with kind of a reasonable amount of certainty that the business model we're operating now will not be the same in 10 years. But what will be there, I, I genuinely think, is an energy as a service business model, how they pay, I don't know. Um, and most utilities that a majority of customers will be using in Africa will be on a pay-as-you-go basis. Um, so, yeah, I think population growth in Africa is huge. The current solutions are not suitable for them and the emergence of industries such as the off-grid sector will play a major role in improving the lives of what will be billions of people in the next kind of 20 to 30 years. And thank you for joining us for this edition of the Future of Business podcast.
If you enjoyed the episode, please do rate, review and subscribe. We'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, if you have comments or questions or if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please feel free to email us at sbspodcasts at sbs.ox.ac.uk. Until next time, goodbye.